Hello, and welcome to At the Podium with Manuela Mezqua. You may be thinking, hmm, the person talking right now doesn't look or sound like Manny. You're right. I'm not. My name is Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, and I'm Manny's podcasting coach. After months of encouraging Manny to share his story, today he finally agreed. So I'm interviewing him, the one and only Manuela Mezqua, about who he is, where he came from, and where he hopes to go. So to start, I'd like to tell you listening a little bit about Manny's remarkable journey and share his bio. Manuela Mezqua is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and executive in the wealth management and insurance industry. And he's the founder of The Podium Group, which has a concentrated focus of serving athletes, business owners, and CEOs. Within Manuel's five-year span leading Mass Mutual Great Lakes, the firm has sponsored and supported over 60 nonprofit organizations and has been recognized on Metro Detroit's Best and Brightest Companies to Work For list annually since 2018, as well as Crane's Detroit Business Cool Places to Work in Michigan list in 2019, 2021, and 2022. Manuel has been recognized by D-Business Magazine each year since 2019 as one of Detroit's 500 most powerful business leaders in Metro Detroit. He received the 2019 Hebner Service Award from the Detroit chapter of the Society of Financial Services Professionals and Mass Mutual's National Community Service Award in 2015, 2019, and 2022. During his professional career, he has spoken at more than 50 conferences and companies across the country. He believes some of the greatest professional skill sets are the ones we learned as children. Be polite. Remember and use a person's name. Ask for permission and give compliments because being kind is cool. He lives in Michigan with his wife, Samantha, and his children, Ava and Atlas. Today, you'll learn more about his journey, his career, what drives him, his family, how he defines greatness, and what it truly means to be at the podium of life. Before we get into it, I also want to give a shout out to all the At The Podium listeners and followers who submitted amazing questions. They're sprinkled throughout the interview. We truly appreciate you being in the community and listening to the show each week. So without further ado, here he is, Manuela Mezqua. Manny, thank you so much for being on your show (laughs) At The Podium and for telling your story. I feel so honored to get the opportunity to facilitate the telling of your story because it is something that is so beautiful and that people really need to hear. And there's so many inspirational moments, wins, losses, and lessons in the story of Manuela Mezqua. So thank you for being on your show and for sharing from your heart. So I want to go back because I want to know what the inciting incident of Manny was. Like what instilled this relentless drive for greatness in your soul? You know, that's a great question. My parents came to this great country from Mexico, and in doing that, they made a very conscious decision at their own expense and their own happiness to say, hey, someday we are going to have children. And whether they are men or women, we want to raise them in an environment that gives them unlimited possibilities and opportunities for life. And so my father made that decision first and came here from Mexico, and eventually he married my mother, complete cradle robber. He's 18 (laughs) years older than her. He was 40. She was 22. And he was a real OG, one of the last ones, one of the last ones around. They decided to start their family in Chicago. 
I already had a half-brother named Robert, who I care about very much. And my brother Alex was born in 76. My parents married in 74. Alex was born in 76. I was born in 78. And Will Guillermo was born in 80. And, and that's where the story began. And so I think one of the most powerful gifts our parents gave us, and Samantha and I continue to take this forward into our family with Avon Atlas now, is to really inspire and empower our children to dream the very biggest dreams that they have without limits or boundaries. And our faith is, is rooted in believing in God, and we believe that He is the only one who can choose otherwise. And so for us, we say, hey, Avon Atlas, whatever it is that you want to be, we can make this thing happen, right? We've got to put in the work, not take shortcuts, lead with respect and love. Our parents gave my brothers and I that in a big, big, big way, big way. That is so beautiful. I know you've talked a lot about how they instilled a love of this country and the American dream in you. And I'm curious to hear, how were dreams framed in your household? How did your parents talk to you about dreaming big? I don't have memories of them saying, this is what the American dream looks like, or this is what greatness looks like. I have very fond memories of them saying, this is what it looks like to be a good human. This is what it looks like to be a man of, of character and integrity, even making mistakes right? Because I think that's one of the things, again, grounded in our faith, we understand that those things happen. It's when they happen, am I working on a way to learn from that moment, right? The lessons are in the wins and the losses, the moments of adversity. Am I taking a second to hit the pause button on the movie of life and learn from that moment so as to not recreate whatever mistake or missed opportunity or misstep occurred? And I've made many of them, but I don't vividly recall them saying, this is what it's going to look like. I do vividly recall conversations about having respect for people. I do vividly recall having conversations of when you walk in a room, you greet everybody, eyeball to eyeball, firm handshake, be proud of who you are and the family you represent, be kind, be polite ask for permission, say thank you, even if it's in excess, give gratitude at all times for what you have. And those are the memories that I remember. And I think that those characteristics or descriptions of what it looked like to be a man that can be respected someday, those are the sort of the foundation of where we then, all of us, all my, my brothers and I, we just, we just got to work and we just started grinding since a very young age, whether it was academically, athletically, or in the workplace. And we're still doing that today. Yeah, all very high achievers. And of course you are being the CEO and having this amazing financial practice. So I was curious about that because something I've heard you speak about in a lot of your speeches and a lot of your talks with people on the show is in childhood, there were a lot of financial peaks and valleys. There was struggle because your parents were immigrants. They were working hard. And you've told me yourself how part of what drives you today to create a better financial future for yourself and others comes down to seeing that struggle and knowing your parents deserve more and there could be a better way. How is that 
struggle something that drives you today? And how do you keep them in mind in everything you're doing in this field? Growing up in a very blue-collar neighborhood of hardworking American families, some immigrants, some not, defined by that generation, it was just in the air, like it was in the grass that we tackled each other on, like grit and grind and work ethic and responsibility and getting up and doing what you said you would do, honoring that commitment that you said. It wasn't just my mother and father who were working hard to provide opportunities for their children. It was all of my closest friends, you know, from, you know, Chris Ader, Matt Adam, Randy Ridgely, Adam Maley, Augustine Vargas. I just have so many friends from my childhood, Michael Soto, where all of our families were that way. My brothers and I, I think we were blessed abundantly to be surrounded by families who had similar core values. And they demonstrated that day after day, week after week, month after month, even with the peaks and valleys around financial security, stability, and success. And so in remembering the peaks and valleys, but being reminded that we all just had to stay the course, no matter what, you stay the course, right? And that's where I always say, like, especially to Avon Atlas today, grit and resiliency, that, that's measured very easily, It's measured by how quickly you bounce back to what you said you would do in a moment of adversity. When you do that and you stay the course, I believe that that is the simplest, most tactical way to continue to make progress towards those dreams and priorities that you have in your life. I have two more questions about your parents. I know that they are such and continue to be such a big influence in your life, and I'm wondering What quality from your dad runs through everything you do in your life? Oh, I'm like the most controlled chaos risk taker. You know, if you think about my father's story, he came here with virtually nothing in his pocket, knew few people, and then somehow makes his way to Chicago and then said, hey, I'm going to go back to Mexico and meets my mother and says, no, we're going to get married. And he went and then comes back to Chicago with my mom, right? And he just went and he just always went and went and went and went. And my father, as much as others from the outside looking in may not see it, I idolized him for that aspect of who he was and what he represented. And so the day I graduated from college from DePaul, Division Three, Greencastle, Indiana, the next morning I packed up my car. At our fraternity, Delta Tau Delta, greatest fraternity on campus, Beta Beta chapter. And I drove to Dallas, Texas in one day (laughs) by myself. And I said, I'm going to go work for this startup company in Dallas, Texas. And I want to start the day after I graduate. That sounds about right for you. I get to Dallas, I move in, and I started work that Monday. And that has been the story of my life. And I've always quietly, Without over-communicating it, I've always quietly drawn my strength for taking risk from my father and watching and listening and recalling the story of his life. So beautiful. And what quality from your mom do you feel runs through everything you do? I get my love of our faith from my mother, praying of the rosary from my mother, asking God for guidance, for clarity, for discernment, 
for courage, for confidence, for humility. I get that from my mother. I also am a closet aspiring chef and florist. I hear you're an amazing cook, by the way. I am actually really good. What's your favorite thing to cook? Breakfast tacos. I literally make the best breakfast tacos in the state of Michigan. Atlas and I have agreed that as soon as I can call it a day on the career I'm in right now, we're going to start a breakfast taco truck business that's like a pop-up restaurant. We drive, we get permission to park somewhere, and it's going to be called Taquitos and Floritos. And so we're going to pop up tables and chairs, and I'm going to design a flower arrangement for each table so that as you come and you have your breakfast taquitos, you get to take the flower arrangement with you. I love that idea. I'm a huge fan of our friends at Sport of Kings out in L.A., and as a listener of this show, you've got to check them out. Sporta Kings is an LA-based clothing brand that was started by two surfers and longtime friends. The story's incredible. They carry a wide range of premium tees, hoodies, sweats, caps, and more. And they're designed in-house folks made locally in Los Angeles and Orange County. Samantha and Ava and Atlas say, Dad, you're either in a blue suit and white shirt or Sporta Kings. And they're right. That's about it. Don't forget, Sporta Kings is a homegrown brand focused on quality over quantity. And if you go check them out online at S-O-K-F-Y. So basically, Sporta Kings Forever Young, S-O-K-F-Y dot com. And use the promo code PODIUM. You'll receive 20% off your entire order. Again, that's S-O-K-F-Y dot com. And use the promo code PODIUM at checkout for 20% off. And now, back to the show. So, you're obsessed with sports. You played football in high school and college. Tell me what that journey was like and why you ended up giving it up in college. That's a great question. I also have just always very much looked up to my brothers, right? And... So we're progressing through the seasons of my life, and we're in that college season. Going through high school, my brother Alex was one of the best football players I ever saw play. He played offensive tackle. He was great. He played for one of the greatest teams that ever played at our high school. I played freshman year football, and somehow, you know, they say birds of a feather flock together. And it's so true. The summer going into my sophomore year, I started hanging out with different birds, and those birds were not going out for football. So my brother Alex's senior year was my sophomore year, and not having played on the team with him was also one of my biggest regrets ever. He was a great player. He had a great season. He got a a number of different honors, as well as academically. He was the valedictorian of our high school that year. And I just regretted it so much. So I I really recommitted myself in that moment. So we talk about hitting the pause button and learning from our losses. I very quickly realized, wow, I just just lost what could have been one of the greatest experiences with my brother because of my selfishness and saying, oh, I'm too cool to put in that work. And thankfully, he helped kind of correct that through his actions and not his words. 
in my observing him closely, you know, they say success leaves clues. And watching my brother, I was like, man, I want that someday. So I went back out for football my junior year, had a very mediocre junior year, and I just kept grinding and working out and working out and working out. And I came back my senior year and so became a team captain. And for someone who just hadn't really played, I had a good amount of success my senior year, and I got a number of different honors. I saw that season playing football as something really special. And I was fortunate enough to go to DePaul following my brother, Alex, again. Again, success leaves clues. I look up to him in such a big way that I wanted to follow him to DePaul. So landed there, go out for football my freshman year with a big ego, quit, embarrassed, lesson again. Boy, I love football. What am I doing here? I played rugby and track that year. And my sophomore year, I go back to football. I finished my junior year, never played again, and didn't didn't even finish the season my junior year. And really, I just was going through that window of my life was likely the most selfish window of my life. So first time away from home, my junior year was my first year without really the presence of a brother. I always have this like grounding aspect to my life by having my brothers by being the middle one with them on bookends. And so with him leaving, again, graduated with honors at DePaul. He ended up going to law school at Northwestern, was president of the student body at Northwestern, super proud of all he did and all the hard work and sacrifice he made. But I ended up finding myself at DePaul by myself my junior year. And that year, they moved me from middle linebacker to right guard because I just was not going to play at middle linebacker. And that was very emotionally difficult for me. Anyone who's played offensive line knows it's like all the guts, all the courage, zero glory. And I just was accustomed to needing recognition and needing to achieve. And I need measurements. I need to keep score. Well, how do you keep score on offensive line? You don't. And so I left football halfway through my junior year and I never played again. And leaving DePaul, I've said this many times, even when I've gone back to DePaul, because I serve on an advisory board, greatest regret of my collegiate career. So greatest regret of my high school career. And then, you know, that was that sharp that I said, hey, let's do that again in college. And so I recreated the same experience in college and somehow just did not make a decision that I could look back on and be proud of. If someone's in a moment like that in their life where they're not getting recognized and they're grinding and they feel like they can't see what could possibly be the benefit or the good outcome of this, what's your advice to them for how to stick with it? If it is their dream, if it is something that's important to them and to get that recognition internally instead of waiting for outside validation. So that's a great question. I I don't even know that it's about the latter part. I think it's about what process or structure do you have for decision-making in your life? We talk about mentors and advocates all the time, and I'm sure I was yapping about mentors at that age too, but I didn't take it seriously enough to put guardrails or a structure or process in place for me on how I was making big decisions that would impact the rest of my life. I go back to DePaul now, and all of my closest friends were the team captains. Two of them are the godfathers to my children, and I can't share in the celebration of their four years in the celebration of what they achieved their senior year. I can't partake in that other than as a fan. And if you think like that's not bothersome, it's crippling. 
it's crippling. I've been back to DePaul maybe three to four times in 20 years. I've gone to zero reunions. Why? Because I'm not proud of having quit. It's not what I want to represent. It's not what I want to teach my children. It's not who I want my wife to be married to. But, you know, I have to acknowledge that. But if you don't challenge or force yourself to confront the adversity as well as you confront the glory, you're going to miss out on so much. We will wake up and our lives will be so dynamically different than what was destined for us when we were born. And and so that's why, you know, I just kind of still struggle with it, right? But everyone who has dreams and priorities for their life, three things, write them down because if it's not written, it's not real. Make them public, maybe not to the world, but make them public to the people who love you, care about you, and are truly your advocates. A mentor tells you what to do, an advocate does it with you. And that's a big difference. And then have a system in place. Have two to three people you really, really admire that you know when you got to make a tough decision about love, business, sports, or faith, you're going to go to those people. Have a process for that. And I just didn't have it then. Thankfully, I have it now. So I make less of those bonehead decisions, but I didn't have it then. So let's talk about another setback you experienced because you did, like you said, bravely pack everything up. You were ready to do this startup with some of your best friends from college Mm -hmm. and you did it for two years. It was a great time in your life. You took $40,000 and then stock in the company. And then the company ended up going under and you were left with $2,000 and back home in the basement of your childhood home. I want to give a shout out to Don Dasky. He wrote me a check for $2,000 when he closed the doors on the company to help me get all my stuff home. And he didn't have to do that. And I just still always give him so much credit. His assistant was Betty Pittman. Loved her. And she was such a shining light on behalf of Mr. Dasky. So what did that job teach you about life and how did it inform the rest of your trajectory? I think it continued to just build upon this theme and this observation and impression I had of my father. Man, my dad had a ton of courage to take risks, right? And I mean, him asking my mother alone, I mean, he was 40, she was 22, to marry him and move, leave Mexico, move to Chicago. Like, Oh, yeah. Who, who? Your eyeballs are going to freeze. You'll love it. <laughs> I genuinely believe fortune favors the brave. And so just watching my dad take risks gave me confidence to take that risk. And the fact that to me, I've just always been obsessed about what it looks like to be a great teammate. What's it look like to constantly get picked first to a team where people are like, I need that guy on my team. That's what I want to represent in my life. I want to represent the guy that everybody's like, I want that guy on this team. And so I worked very hard. And I think intentionally at that time, coming out of college, regretting leaving football again to say, I want to be a great teammate. When I get down there and we gave it our best, we couldn't control what was happening in the economy at that time. And the company went under and I moved back home saying, what's the next risk? (laughs) So what was it? Because now you're obviously the CEO of this company. You have an incredible practice of your own. How did you get from that basement to sitting in this beautiful office that has a complete view of the city of Detroit? I fumbled around in three different jobs over the course of about a year. When I moved home, I really was clueless about what I wanted to do. And in sitting down with a few mentors and talking to people who I respected, again, believing in success leaves clues. 
I was working very intentionally to reach out to people that I admired and respected and saw as being successful to try to identify what were the common characteristics and traits of these people. And were they happy? That's a big thing that obviously, you know, we would take from my parents and growing up in our house. And I see just I in, in being married for going on 19 years and with Samantha for 22 years, I just see her unflinching obsession of, hey, man, the first question is, are you happy? Why do you think so many people miss that? Because it's so true. I see this all the time. I live in LA, as you know. People have ungodly success, such such a wild amount of success, and they're miserable. Because all that the media and big business and big brands market and promote is that you will be happy if you buy our shit. If you come here and spend a ton of money, you will be happy. If you buy this, you will be happy. If you wear this, you will be happy. If you come to this game in the suite, you will be happy. If you go on this vacation, you will be happy. And that's bullshit. It is. Like, no, you have to be happy first to then be like, man, I really appreciate the fact that these are slightly more expensive shoes than I would normally wear. And my shoes are not. These are the third soles on these shoes. These shoes are 11 years old. Okay. And um, he's got a good cobbler. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Beehive, Chicago Wells, South Wall Street. My guy, Sam. Sam, you heard it here first. Shout out, Sam. We simply live in a society that is conditioning humanity to believe that immediate gratification and consuming expensive things somehow will change the way you feel on the inside. And it's not. Living your life with people who you love and you pour into like a fountain, not a drain, and that pour back into you is really, I think, the foundation of getting through any peak and valley. And in having that, you're able to still find joy, real joy and gratitude for your moments and for whatever it is that's happening. So what happened was through that brief discovery process, which was probably six to 12 months, there was one consistent theme that I found in the people that I looked up to the most, which was they were in sales and they looked at sales as an act of service, not as a transaction. And so I was fortunate enough that at that time when I was soul searching what I might want to do for the rest of my life and hopefully not take that many more risks and missteps it became obvious as soon as I met a gentleman by the name of Joe Gurgley that I I wanted to be Joe Gurgley. I had been introduced to him by a mutual friend, Mike Haddon, who's a stud I thought the world of. And he said, hey, you need to meet my friend Joe. And so Joe calls me, we take a meeting, and he pulls in, parks, gets out, Navy suit, just like this, white shirt, crisp white shirt, gold tie, and a Rolex. And I'm like, this dude literally is like the Irish character <laughs> in the Godfather movie. I'm like, I want to be him. I don't even know what he does. I'm going to go work for this guy. He comes in, sets huge grip, like bear paw grip, shakes my hand, does all the, th- all the things my mom and dad said. This is what a man of character does. At the end, I'm just like, I- I'd, l- I'd like to work for you. And Two months later, I take my life and health exam, I pass it, and literally like a month and a half to two months from when we met, I started on February 10th of 2003. So you, you're a country financial, then how do you go from there to where we are now? I think there's three skill sets that I really tripled down on 
as I was coming through my career. One was honor my commitments in business. So if I said I would do it, I did it. Number two was be unflinching and undeterred about meeting new people. Have a presence, have a system for getting to know people, have a process for inviting people to sit down and visit with you when it's appropriate to share what you each do. And then I I think the third for me going through the business and coming up in the business was that I just became obsessed with it and I shared my obsession. I become obsessed about things. And when I do, I love sharing it. And I became obsessed about the business. This business and Joe Gurgley changed the trajectory of our entire lives for my family and for anyone connected to my family anyone connected to my family will be mathematically impacted by the gift of this career. One thing I'm noticing that runs through everything you do and everything you say is authenticity, creating authentic relationships, authentically being obsessed with something and not being able to contain yourself from sharing it, and human connection. I'm curious, what is your system for creating these connections with people? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that and or have fear and being vulnerable enough to reach out. I found that, and and I it, look. I'm relearning this every week, every month, every quarter, every year with my own family, especially my wife Samantha. One of the greatest things, if not the greatest thing, that I think we all seek in life and out of this experience on Earth is to feel appreciated and understood. And so, for me, I found very early on that if you are going to go out and attempt to build a presence, a brand, a reputation, and influence within a certain demographic, you have to have a simple, repeatable system for doing it in order to not just do it efficiently, but to be effective. So systems, consistent systems create predictable outcomes. So for me, I just always use the acronym FORD. Family, occupation, recreation, dreams. If we meet at an event, within 15 minutes, one, I'm going to control asking the questions. Two, you're going to love sharing your story. And three, four out of five times, you're going to say, wow, my boyfriend hasn't even asked me all that in the last six months. F-O-R-D, it gets me a chance to say, Lauren, hey, I'd love to hear a little bit about your family. That's it. Now, Lauren's going to take that and interpret that however Lauren does authentically about her family. Oh my gosh, I love my dad. My dad's my Uber and he takes me everywhere and he walks me into the offices that I got to go to and he makes sure that the room is safe and he kind of clears the room. And after he's assessed the safety of the room, then my dad leaves. Michael LaGrasso, shout out to you. And so that's awesome, right? I learned so much in how you just answer, hey, tell me a little bit about your family. Then I can ask you, what do you do for work? I'm curious, loved hearing about your dad. I'm curious what you do for work. So occupationally, what does the person do? What do you love about that? That's awesome. What do you love about it? Get them to talk positive, happy feelings, happy emotions. Don't ask negative leading questions. Ask positive leading questions. Third one is recreation. Boy, that sounds like you work a lot. When you unexpectedly take a day off, what's the first thing you choose to do with your free time? So now you're understanding recreationally what the person does. And the last thing I always love to ask somebody about is their dreams. Hey, what's that one thing that if you just crush this year, 
and you get that promotion, you get that bonus that you mentioned earlier, what's that one thing you're going to do for yourself to hit the pause button on the movie of your life and say, nice work, Lauren, I'm proud of you. You do that in 15 minutes, that's more powerful than 90% of the conversations that happen in any given day. That's it. Because relationships are everything. What you're really doing, you're not selling, you're building a relationship. So you're in a business that can be very high rejection. I know you have an incredible success rate, but you've undoubtedly had to deal with a lot of rejection in life. How have you learned to cope around rejection? And what's your advice for someone out there who's struggling with that in their lives? I wish I had learned this very early on, but if you have a good system for meeting the type of people that you really can be helpful to, I think that's step one. I have a great system for ensuring that the type of people I'm meeting or I'm engaging at least, they are the type of people we can add value and make an impact on. And we're engaging those people, then I think it comes down to language and process mastery. Inviting them in, in a very simple and clear manner into the possibility of conversation and discovery. So I don't shy away from explaining that I serve as a financial advocate to my clients' greatest dreams and priorities. And I help them have a very simple, honest relationship between themselves and their money to put in the right roadmap systems and disciplines to achieve every single dream and priority that they aspire to achieve. I'm going to help you hit the play button on every single one when you get to that point through simple math. People lie, numbers don't. And so our business is really simple, but we're inviting people into that conversation. And so we've got to be candid and authentic and transparent that that's the conversation we're inviting you into having, you know? So for me, I think it's making sure that we're calling on the right demographic, the right market that we could be of service or value to. And then when you do, you've got to have good language and process mastery to keep it simple, clear, and inviting to where they'd want to learn more about how you add value and solve problems for your clients. What I took away from that is on the rejection piece, when it still does come in, it's easier to deal with because you know you've done everything you possibly can to set yourself up for success. You're right. What I wish I would have learned and what I meant to say to begin with was what I wish I would have learned was that when you have that, when you have those two things, you should still expect rejection, but about 80% of the rejection you're experiencing is timing. It has nothing to do with you. So, hey, am I calling on the right market that I could be helpful to and add value and solve problems for? Yep. Check. Green light, right? Two, Do I have good language and process mastery to keep it simple, clear, and inviting for someone to very easily be able to accept the invitation to learn more about each other through conversation and discovery? Yep, green light, check. If they say no, then 80% of that's just timing. It has nothing to do with you. So this is why we've got to walk away with our chest out, chin up still and say, hey, it's not me. It's just not now. Who's next? And that's why we have to have a good, simple, repeatable system for consistently meeting more of the right people. You not getting what you want out of a moment or an action doesn't always have to be listed with an L, right? And if you want to list them all with an L, that's fine. Call it a lesson, though. It's just a lesson. What did I learn from this outcome? But that goes back to the You have to hit the pause button on that damn treadmill and get off, reflect, 
and then get back on the treadmill. You have to have a system and a process for that. So many things can go wrong in life when you're so obsessed that you don't have a system for pausing and learning from the moment. And I think that's really important as well. So you're a leader, a, a huge leader in the community at this company. I'm a steward. You were a okay. steward. Why, do you, why is it important to rebrand it that way? Well, it's a good question. I've just heard, it's like the word boss. I can't, I just despise it. I just yeah. really, it's like just such a nasty word to me. I have just very negative memories of people who would call themselves a boss or a leader. A lot of self-appointed titles of authority. And so I just don't like You it. don't engage. Servant leadership, Yes. I think stewards are, uh, the way I see my stewardship over the firm, our organization, and as a steward and and committed partner to a lot of philanthropic organizations in Detroit and Chicago, I see it as, hey, I, I am somebody who is committed to providing and protecting, providing and protecting this group of humans, this cause, this mission, this crusade. And I treat everything like it's a crusade, everything. Everything is a crusade. Is that important to you? Then let's get at it. Like, let's go. Not, oh, maybe. <laughs> right? Like, no, let's be obsessed. Let's be on a crusade. Rising tide lifts all boats. The waters are rough. Choose. Are you going to rise with the tide? Or are you going to drown? And so I, I think stewardship, providing and protecting for a cause, for a group of humans, for something that... I'm very passionate about, like I am our firm, Mass Mutual Great Lakes, and all the great work that we do here in the Midwest. I think stewardship is more appropriate for the way I act. Not my words, but for the way I act and behave in the firm. I was going to ask you what your approach to leadership was and what you've actually seen work for people. But it seems like for you, it's about finding out what people need and then serving them. Tell me about that a little bit more. It goes back to what I speak about often, which is the difference between a mentor and an advocate. I've been so blessed to have so many great mentors in my life. There are a lot of people in that mentor column. Advocates, though, my wife is at the top of my advocate column. My wife rolls up her sleeves, beautiful woman, incredible woman. You know, I've always said, like, she could serve and lead this organization better than I can. She just chose to serve and lead our family as her priority. And so she's the CEO of our home. I've never in my life said my wife stays home. My wife works from within the home. She is the CEO of this company named the Amesqua family that resides in Bloomfield Hills. And so this woman is an advocate. And the way I look at it is that servant leadership because she rolls up her sleeves when I fall down, when I fall on my face, when I make a mistake, when I'm struggling with, do I make this investment? Do I take this risk? Should I believe in myself? Am I starting to feel imposter syndrome? She's the one who's consistently like, you got this, you got this, you got this. This is who you are. This is where you came from. This is why God put that in your life. This is where you are supposed to go as the leader or steward of this family. And that's really empowering. And so I have learned a great deal from observing her live and lead in her life that I'm like, boy, I could do that in business. And that's really where I think a lot of my inspiration has come from is observing the way she has dug deep, especially over the last 
15 years since she was pregnant with Ava uh, and said like, no, I'm going to be the greatest version of myself. I'm going to empty the tank. When God calls me home, they will know that my tank was on empty. There won't even be fumes left. They'll know I left it all on earth. And so seeing that, it's easy. It's easier when you wake up in the same home as that. And you can say like, man, I better have my shit together today. I love that. Your description of your wife is bringing tears to my eyes. I've had the privilege of watching the interview you did with her. She's an incredible woman. It's clear to me why you draw so much inspiration from her. The reverence you speak about her with, the reverence you speak about your family with is something that inspires me and that I aspire to be like when I have my own family someday. So tell me about your family. You've got this beautiful wife, Samantha, your beautiful children, Ava and Atlas. I know they run through every single thing you do. What part do they play in your success and how you show up in the world? I mean, everything. They are the center of my vision board. The difficulty in life, I have found my greatest, greatest enemy in life is making quiet decisions inside my head about what is best for our family. That is the greatest enemy of my life. Thinking in my head, I'm saying, I'm just going to work harder because if I work harder, I'm going to get this next promotion. And with this next promotion, I'm going to have more influence to impact more lives. And when you impact lives in our business, that's a great thing. You know, one of my mentors and a man I look up to very much, John Vaccaro, he says like, hey, when you're in the business of helping people, business is always good. You are always in a good place in business, right? So quietly in my head, I'm making these unilateral decisions and I'm not even the CEO of Amesco Enterprises. But I think, oh, if I just achieve this next thing, because I also have this obsession about one more all the time, one more, one more, one more. So sadly, I have an internal, emotional, quiet fight with that all the time. And sometimes I've made those decisions that it's like, no, man, that that actually didn't align. That didn't jam out properly with the center of my vision board, which is for my wife and my children to be happy. I want them to be happy. I want them to be healthy. And I want them to go to heaven. That's it. That's how it works. And so if that's really the mission and I'm truly obsessed about it, I've got to do the one thing that I chronically have done very poorly in my personal life, which is learn to communicate. And it's crazy, right? Because all I do at work is communicate. And so three, I want to acknowledge the fact that I know that increased communication, intentional communication, focused, obsessed communication, just one-on-one with each of those three people that I'm obsessed about and love so much, that will continue to help me feel the happiness I'm seeking and the simple success I'm looking for in life. What's the best and biggest lesson you've learned from being Ava and Atlas's dad? I actually don't have to think about it. I was thinking of what are the right words for it, but they were born into the world just craving the same thing that we all crave as adults. Like, hey, dad, just see me and take time to understand me. And I'm like, wow, that's it. That's all. That's really... It seems so simple. I'm like, well, how do we screw it up so much like as adults, right? Like, oh, Atlas, you want to go to loop sports cards again? 
and, and buy a bunch of sports cars of players that you you weren't even alive to watch, but you know your dad's obsessed about William the Fridge Perry and you know Mike Dick and you know Dick Buckus, and and it's like okay, that is my son's love language when we're in Florida. So like I know that now. Ava's love language are being active, playing sports. She loves to work out, man. This little girl's going to, I mean, she's just going to be like an assassin, like a brunette Kill Bill character. And it's like working out, being active, enjoying different experiences together. She likes quiet time. She likes alone time. It's like, just take time, hit the pause button, invest time together, understanding each other. What I understood from that was the most important thing you've learned from them is it just reiterates the fact that we all want to be seen. We all want to be known. We all want to be understood. Mm -hmm. And they've helped you to really hone in on that. You've been able to see them. And it sounds like they've also been able to see you. So I said you married up. And I know that you do feel that. But I feel like you married a true equal. And you married somebody that is your absolute partner in life where you really meet each other, where you're fighting for each other in the relationship. And I think that's something so many married partners miss is they're fighting for themselves, not for each other in the relationship and their family. What is the greatest lesson you've learned from being Samantha's husband? It's easily that I can always improve. And it's not improve based on what something that she expects, but based on the happiness that I want in my life for myself. And watching her live and lead her life, I'm just continue to be reminded that it is possible for me to continue to improve my path towards the things that make me happy because that makes me a better husband, father, son, brother, coworker, teammate. And so I think that's probably the greatest lesson that I've just consistently been reminded of as I've watched her just so gracefully live, you know, this season of her life. So speaking of your amazing wife, I know you do a lot of philanthropy work together. That's a huge part of who you are, of what you do in the world. Tell me about that, why it's so important to you and some of the things you're involved in. That's a great question. Anything where we are doing acts of kindness, of service, of value to other people to take care of others on earth is always going to be a top priority for our family. I learned it from our parents. My brothers and I had great examples of of parents who maybe at times did not have as much as they would have liked, but they were consistently sending money to Mexico, to my grandparents, to my aunts or uncles who were struggling, to cousins. And, And just having that example, that's one of hundreds, but that is one that it just, it happened every month in our house. And no matter what my parents were struggling with, I always saw them have enough nickels to rub together to share the little bit that they had. I always saw them, you know, this table had eight chairs and they made dinner for eight and a family of four showed up. My mom would find a way to have 12 chairs and 12 plates of food and every plate would be full, even though she made dinner for eight. And so having those two examples and then Samantha can't even watch a sad movie, but being with someone like that for over 20 years and having that consistent reinforcement in our home, it's almost like it just went, it went from my parents to my brothers to my wife. And I've just always had that consistent sort of influence to make me really take time to pause and have gratitude for what I have. 
more than half of my life was not necessarily always financially secure or stable, definitely not financially successful, but we still took time to pause and recognize that if not us to help, then who? So Samantha and I are just obsessed about us being part of the solution, being part of what that rising tide that lifts all boats, right? My friend, Lauren Johnson, who's incredible, she was a mental performance coach, said something to me years ago that blew my mind. She's like, be a fountain, not a drain. And she is a great example of someone who's living her life in a way that she is constantly pouring into others instead of taking away. And I think there's so many people around us like that, that we can look up to and look to, to learn from, because again, success leaves clues that we're just choosing that we're going to be a part of the solution wherever it is that we live. And now we live in Michigan. And so there's just some organizations that we're just fanatical about. We love, we're obsessed about. And in this season of our life, you know, we want to play a big role. Love that. And it's so beautiful. Let's wrap it up by talking about a service that you do, which I feel this podcast is a service. You're giving so many tools and tips to people on how to live a successful, fulfilled, most of all, happy life through the people you talk with. Tell me why you started this podcast and what does at the podium mean to you? Well, I started the podcast by accident (laughs) and really what was happening in my life, it was in the middle of COVID. We can all remember that season of our life a few years ago, that nightmare, if you will. And what was happening is I was conducting many more annual reviews with clients than I typically did in the previous three years. So when I moved to Michigan, I really put my head on of being a steward of the firm, and I had put my personal practice on pause. COVID hits, and all of a sudden, we really got mean, lean, and clean as a company. So I said, boy, this is a great time to reconnect with my clients. And so I intentionally began to reconnect with my clients. And in that reconnection, what we were observing is that in our 50-minute annual reviews, we'd only invest about 10 minutes going over their plan or planning or insurance. And then we'd invest the rest of the time saying, what podcasts are you obsessed about? What book are you reading? Hey, who are you drawing from today? Success leaves clues. Who is the successful person in your life that you're looking up to right now? And what are the clues? And they're like, man, we we talk about our planning for like five, 10 minutes. And then the rest of the time, it's like, you're running a podcast. Why don't you just run a podcast? So I've been blessed that my private practice, which is under the podium group, It's a national practice now because people have a way of living their life and just moving across the country, even though it originated in Chicago. And it's mostly comprised of people in professional sports, entertainment, entrepreneurs who started their own company, or C-suite executives who are serving and leading the masses. And in working with those people, they all have really unique stories. And the common theme that I found with those people is that they're big risk takers, They're always on the run. I mean, they're like grind, 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 grind. And they've got huge visions. So many of these people are the children who grew up that never stopped dreaming like they were children. And so I'm like, man, one of the greatest tragedies in our country is that as we get older and get to college, we put so much pressure on students to decide what they're going to be for the rest of their life. And my story is such a perfect example of having four different jobs before I found my calling and before I found this noble profession. And I'm like, why don't we start a conversation 
and just without any professional training, begin to record the conversations of the win losses and lessons along the way in people's lives as they've chased in an unflinching like fashion, their greatest dreams and vision for what they aspire to create on earth. And so that's where the podcast originated from. It's become something pretty special, super blessed and thankful for the positive feedback that we've gotten. I've just had such special people on the show and just heard heard and learned so much from their special stories. So this season, we're focusing pretty much solely on sports. Like it's mostly all athletes, people attached to the sports world. Why is this a particularly good place to focus on to find stories of greatness, wins, losses, and the lessons along the way? I found that there's some common characteristics of the top performing people in business. And one of those very often is someone who, who was a student athlete in college. There's a short list of things that all student athletes at some point, if they're going to play through college, they've developed a level of competency, if not mastery in. One is the commitment to win. You got to win. You got to be okay keeping score. I'm sick of the fake trophies we give our children. It's literally, we're creating marshmallows in our society, and someday something tragic is going to happen to this country because everyone's a marshmallow. You got to win. You got to keep score. We have to have an army of warriors. So we've got to still be willing to develop that. And I think that that competitiveness, that grit, that commitment to saying, we're keeping score and we're going to figure out if I won or lost. And if I lost, I'm going to turn that into a lesson. That's what keeps advancing society. Number two, to win, you got to have a commitment to work hard. You know, Anthony Pittman said it best, man. Like, you know, I get my confidence from my hard work. When I'm working hard, super confident. When I'm not working hard, not as confident, right? We have to have a commitment to work hard. And I think student athletes demonstrate that by getting a degree and devoting the other little bit of time they're awake to playing sports and being a great teammate. The third is the discipline to what you said you would do. And the discipline to do the little things that it takes to put in the work and to win, I think is critically important. The fourth is that you're coachable. You have to be willing to be in a feedback-rich environment. You have to be willing to be vulnerable and say, you know what? I'm going to own that. I accept responsibility. I am going to fix that. And that leads into the fifth one. You have to have extreme ownership. And I've many times in my life, many seasons in my life, I've suffered from not wanting to take accountability for my actions, for my decisions, for my tonality, for my intensity. But in the most glorious moments of my life, I've had extreme ownership over every single aspect of that day, of that moment, of that outcome, you know? And I think I think the, the game of life is one in the inches, and so everything matters. And so that's why, to me, I'm just obsessed about sharing the story of ex-student athletes, and that typically lets us interview people that are in professional sports entrepreneurship and running big companies. I had yes. so many more questions to ask you. I just think you're an amazing human being. You're somebody to look up to and listen to each week, which is really lucky that you have a podcast because we could do that. And I'm grateful for the authenticity, the love you put out into the world, how much you care about people. People do need to be seen and loved and heard and believed in. And I think if we had that, if everybody felt that, we wouldn't be facing even half the problems that we have in this world. So thank you for being an advocate of that. Thank you for being an amazing human being. And thank you for teaching me what a snapper is. <laughs> yes, Tabor Pepper. Hey, greatest long snapper in the NFL. TPAP, San Francisco 49ers, hailing from the great state of Michigan, Michigan State football, and the Coach D'Antonio's era. That's right. Hey, I just want to say one last thing. 
you know, kindness is cool and kindness wins. I genuinely believe that it's just such a missing element in many moments of like my daily ongoings and shenanigans. You know, I'm just like, wow, that was that was rude or that that person's not happy or I just don't believe that it's that difficult to be kind everywhere you go. I do not believe it's that difficult. And I think like so many other things in our life, it's a personal choice. Sadly, if you don't choose kindness, you're wrong. You know, never forget this one fact of life. If you meet a jerk at some point today, you've met a jerk. If you have many moments today meeting jerks, you may be the jerk. Choose wisely. Just hit that pause button, put yourself on timeout, take a second to really think about what's going on. And you just give yourself some grace. I think that's the most important thing. When we're struggling emotionally, mentally, hit pause and give yourself some grace. Manny, thank you. Thank you for, again, allowing me this honor for the ability to be your coach to, I mean, to me, you're an advocate for me and a mentor for me and for pushing me to do things I'm uncomfortable with in a good way because it helps me grow. And I'm grateful for you. I learned just as much from you as you've learned from me about podcasting. And I think you're an incredible human. Well, one that I love being with you. Two, it was a blessing and a privilege that you came all the way from the LA area to be with us to do this. So an infinite amount of gratitude for you. And you can't get off the show without telling our listeners where they can find more about you. Well, I'm everywhere at Lauren LaGrasso. So check it out at Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N-L-O-G-R-A-S-S-O. So you can check me out there. I have a podcast called Unleash Your Inner Creative. We talk about a lot of the same things you do, but through the lens of creativity and self-development. And I have music on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So check out my singles. I love it. So glad we were together. Me too. Thank you, Manny. I know you're enjoying this as much as I am, and we didn't want to cut Manny's interview short at all because he has such an incredible story to tell. So you're in for a treat because we're going to come back next week and share the second part of this incredible interview with your host, Manuela Mezqua. Be sure to tune in next week for even more incredible Manny. <laughs>